0: Our Bible reading this morning comes from Psalm 91. The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say concerning the Lord, who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He himself will rescue you from the bird trap, from the destructive plague. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. You will not fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the plague that stalks in darkness or the pestilence that ravages at noon. Though a thousand fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, the pestilence will not reach you. You will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place, no harm will come to you, no plague will come near your tent. For he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you and in all your ways they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone you will tread on the lion and the cobra and you will tremble, trample the young lion and the serpent because he has his heart set on me I will deliver him I will protect him because he knows my name When he calls out to me, I will answer him. I I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and give him honor. I will satisfy him with a long life and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord.
1: This is an interesting psalm for a bunch of uh, different reasons. Um, partly because part of it is uh, written about the psalmist, part of it's written about Jesus, and part of it is written for us. And so this morning, I think we need to think about um, how this applies to us in relation to being people of courage. You know, our, our world is increasingly turning darker and darker and letting go of any sort of sense of biblical morality. Uh, the the very foundations that have propelled our society forward for several centuries. Increasingly, Christians are despised, looked down upon, ridiculed, uh, made out to be fools for believing in God. Christianity is always the first religion to be made fun of and comments made of or about Christians uh, would never be made of uh, people of other faiths. In a sense, our um, our sense of right and wrong is being questioned. Our allegiance to the Bible's truth is, is called outdated. Our insistence that there is more to this life than just living your best life uh, seems hopelessly out of touch for most modern people. And in the face of this ever-growing hostility, you and I need to be people of courage. Courage to stand up for God, to... Uh, to do what is right even when the whole world disagrees with you, to face difficulties, to go through trials and tribulations, courage to walk on the straight and narrow while everyone beckons you to join the wide and the easy road that ultimately leads to destruction. So how is it that we can have Christian courage? This isn't just a question we need to consider because the foundations of our beliefs are being attacked by the world, but because or because the world is just turning increasingly hostile. We need to ask this question because it is a question that bothers us even when we go through difficult times, completely separately to the ridicule of the world. How can you have courage uh, in the face of a financial world where a recession looms and your job or your business is on the line? What does Christian courage look like then? What does it look like to have Christian courage when the inflation rates are sky high and interest rates keep rising and the mortgage that seemed so reasonable four years ago becomes increasingly punishing to repay? How can you have courage when you're diagnosed with something where the treatment is actually worse than the disease? Or how can you have courage when you sit in the doctor's office and they tell you there is no more treatment for you? How can you have courage in the face of a world when, when, the, uh, when your relationship that has been rocky for so long uh, and then in that relationship your spouse says to you one morning, we need to talk or I am leaving. What does Christian courage look like then? This is not an idle question for us. It is a question we have to wrestle with well if we want to live in this world. Psalm 91 gives us the answer to how to live with this kind of Christian courage through a um, kind of three-step program, if you like. Now, I'm not a fan of three-step programs, but Psalm 91 actually does give us a pretty, pretty good three-step program. Step one is to run to your refuge. Step two is to trust in your refuge. And step three is to look to your refuge. So run to your refuge, trust in it, and look to it. So let's, let's have a look. Let's dive in. Step one is to run to your refuge. Verse one says, the one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. Now there should be a big difference between how a Christian responds to difficulty and how a non-believer responds. We respond differently to the situations our life throws at us because our foundations are fundamentally different. We are people who have a refuge that exists not just in this world, but actually apart from it. We are are different. We respond differently because we have a refuge. We have a rock. We have an anchor when the world around us gets tossed and blown around by every wave of speculation. The psalmist here says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High... Now, obviously, when he wrote this, there was no such thing as a Christian. But this is true of us believers in Christ. We who believe in Jesus are the whoever's in this psalm in some way. These are people who have said, I make my my home with God. I'm not going to live like the citizens of this world. I'm not just going to be tossed about by every circumstance that comes my way. I will trust in the everlasting God. I am a child who lives in his house through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And when we believe in Jesus, we get to take up residence in God's house. That is our anchor. That is our residence. That is the shelter of the Most High. And look what it does to us. When you dwell in God's house, here metaphorical, when you are one of his children, you are under God's shadow. You're dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, we have to understand that when this psalm was written, to be in God's shadow meant that you were kept safe. You were under his provision and protection. It's written against a backdrop of a pretty hostile um, desert-like climate. The sun was scorching. You, if you could not find shadow, you were burnt, right? Um, it would be detrimental to your health and your life. But being under God's shadow kept you safe. So safe, in fact, that you could rest there. You, were, you had uh, places to sleep. You could rest in the shadow of the Almighty. You could dwell there. It means you could spend the night in the company of the host. And you don't sleep in a place unless you feel safe. When you have Jesus as your Lord, then you are accepted through his sacrifice on the cross. When you have faith in him, you are safe in God's hands, which is not something actually the world can say. You are anchored in Christ. Even when your world is falling apart around you. It's as if, imagine everyone in the world were kind of ships bobbing around in the ocean. Some days the ocean is calm, there's a nice gentle breeze, the sun is shining, there's not a cloud in the sky. That is much of the life of a person living in in Australia, in the Western world. But when crisis strike, when the times of courage are necessary, it's like the ocean underneath becomes like a big storm on the sea. We don't know how the storm's going to turn out. Is this as bad as, it go, is it, as it's going to get? Will the clouds toss me about? How long will the storm be raging for? You don't know when you're in that circumstance. And as the sea underneath you turns into this tumultuous wave after wave, the wind is rough, it can feel as if you are being crushed by life, as if you might be tossed overboard. The wind lashes at the ship, it pulls you in all kinds of different directions. Some boats are travelling this way, some boats are travelling that way. That's how life feels when you're going through difficult times. As if you are on a rough sea. But there is a difference for how a Christian experiences this to how the rest of the world experiences this. We live under the shadow, the protection of of the Lord Almighty. That doesn't mean the storm on the sea doesn't exist. But it does mean that while the storm is happening, we have an anchor that keeps us well anchored, safe. The other ships are tossed about by every wave. They have no true north, no real safety, no guiding point, no reference point from outside of their situation. But we are anchored to the very rock of ages, the firm foundation, the fortress, as we just saw. You and I don't get lost at sea because we are connected. We can be calm in the middle of the storm because we know that our rock to mix a whole bunch of metaphors our rock our reason for safety cannot be destroyed we dwell in the shadow of the almighty the psalmist describes god as a fortress he says i will say concerning the lord who is my refuge and my fortress my god in whom i trust these are places that you would run to when you were besieged when an army was coming to attack you where, where the enemy was after you places you could you could run to when you felt unsafe you can run to them Because that's where safety lives. And that is who God is for the believer. For the Christian, Jesus is our refuge regardless of what is happening in our world. He is the place where we are safe. If you are going through a difficult time in your life, the message is this, run to your refuge. Find safety in the shadow of the Almighty. Rest in his sanctuary. That's step one, run to your refuge. Step two is to trust your refuge. I'm reading from verse three. He himself will rescue you from the bird trap, from the destructive plague. He will cover you with his feathers. you will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. You will not fear the terror of night or the arrow that flies by day, the plague that stalks in the darkness, the pestilence that ravages at noon. Though a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand fall at your right hand, the pestilence will not reach you. You will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord my refuge, the Most High your dwelling place, no harm will come to you, and the plague will not come near your tent. Why is it that we can trust our refuge? Why is it that we can trust God? Because he has promised to look after us here as a mother hen looks after her chickens, as as a father looks after his children. Now, I want to be very clear here. The psalm is not giving us a promise that we will not get sick. Okay? The psalm is not a promise that nothing bad will ever happen to us. What this is, is a promise of God's protection despite what happens to us. uh, A promise that God is in control no matter what happens to us. Nothing can happen outside of his will. Nothing can happen to us without his permission unless he allows it to happen. He is a good father. Now the Bible talks about this in a number of places, but sort of the classic place to go to is Romans 8.28 where Paul writes of the believers and he says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. What that means, friends, is that every bad thing that happens to you, if you are a believer, is actually good for you. And we know this because God has already taken on himself in Jesus Christ the punishment, the wrath for all our sin. If God did not even spare his own son but gave him up for us, then how will he not also graciously give us everything we need To get through any crisis, all the punishment that you and I have ever deserved has already been poured out on Jesus. That means that nothing that happens in the life of a Christian is punishment for your actions, they are part of God's plan for you. This is how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it in question 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? So, how do you understand God providing for you? God's providence and his almighty and ever present power, uh, God's providence is his almighty and ever present power, whereby, with, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and he so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, fruit and drink, health and sickness, Riches and poverty, indeed all things, come to us not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. Everything comes to us not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. He knows that the experience that you are going through is actually necessary for you. As a father knows what is good for his children. No child chooses to eat the Brussels sprouts on their plate of their own volition. They taste bad. (laughs) But they are good for you. And so as a parent, your parents gave you these vegetables by their fatherly and motherly hand in the same way so our experiences are curated by God, for us. Because on a spiritual level, they are what is best for those who believe. For those who believe. For that to be true takes faith, belief, right? It takes extraordinary faith to trust God And believe that the abuse that has been done to us is ultimately for our good. It takes extraordinary faith to believe that the death of your loved one is ultimately for your good. It takes extraordinary faith to sit in the doctor's office and hear that there is nothing more they can do for you and believe that that is ultimately for your good. But that is why we have the Holy Spirit. The truth is, friends, it won't feel good. But it will be good. And it may take 10 or 20 years of reflection and prayer for you to figure out exactly how that was good for you or why that was good for you. And maybe you will never find it out in this life. But one day you will join Jesus in heaven and you will truly say, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? On that day you will know fully that he loved you so much that whatever happens now actually was for your good. To have courage in the face of crisis means that we not only run to our refuge, but we trust that our refuge, God himself, actually knows what is good for us. That takes faith, but yes, it is true. We can sing with the saints of old, the hymn, the cross has been my shelter in every storm. It's not one we sing here, but the words I think are true. The cross has been my shelter in every storm. With many a wreck, my pathway has been strewn. Whether the winds of sorrow would strive to harm the path that led to refuge, I have known. I'm clinging, clinging to the cross of Calvary. All my life I'll love it and put naught else above it. And when death comes, you will still find me there, clinging to the cross. That's what it takes to trust your refuge to cling to the cross where Jesus died for you and to trust that what he has for you in this life is for your good. Lastly then, in times of trouble, where do we get the strength? Well, we look to our refuge. From verse 11, For he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the young lion and the serpent. Now when you do Bible study to write sermons, sermon, sometimes God gives you a special, uh, like a really special golden nugget of joy. A surprising twist, a special surprise waiting for you when you actually do the work. And this little section of Psalm 91 is one such little Surprise, some little joy. All of what we have said before in some ways comes down to our own eternal strength in some way, doesn't it? We need to run to our refuge, yes, we need to choose to trust in our refuge, but where does the power to do that actually come from? Well, these couple of verses, 11 to 13, hint, talk about where our power to do this comes from they are the golden nugget if you like in psalm 91 for he will uh, command his angels concerning you to protect you in all way all your ways they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone you will tread on the lion and the cobra you will trample the young lion and the serpent where else in the bible are these verses this is a good question do you know You may remember the story of Jesus being tempted in the desert. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry and Satan goes to tempt Jesus in the desert and he's there for 40 days without food and Satan is ready to pounce. And the first temptation he gives him is to turn the stones into bread because he's so hungry. Satan says to him, if he really has God's power, then of course Jesus could do it. But Jesus says, no, I don't just need bread, I live on God's word. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 14 to prove his point. And then Satan takes Jesus up to a high place and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says to Jesus, I will give you all of this, all authority and splendor. It's been given to me, I can give it to you if I want to. And Jesus, whose job it was to come and reclaim authority over the world, um, for him this would have been a great temptation. Satan was saying, look, you can, have, you can complete your mission. You can do what you came to do on earth. No need to go to the cross. Don't worship. All you need to do is just to worship me. But Jesus responds and says, no, I worship God only. And then finally, Jesus is taken to Jerusalem and Satan says there, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, and then he quotes this psalm, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you. They will support you with their their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, does that sound familiar? Satan here understands that Psalm 91 was about Jesus. But, being the liar that he is, he leaves out a little bit of the quotation, doesn't he? He misses out verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the cobra and you will trample the young lion and the serpent. Now if you know your Bible well, you might realize that all throughout Scripture there has been this motif between the man that is God's chosen person and the serpent or the lion, uh, the picture changes, that waits to devour us, that will strike at the heel of the person right after the fall into sin, right back in Genesis 3. God tells Adam and Eve, you know, you've kind of ruined everything, but one day, one day someone will come who will crush the serpent's head. And there is this promise that one day the curse of sin will come undone. And right throughout the Bible, uh, uh, but particularly in the first five books of the Old Testament, there is this motif. Every time Israel has a great victory, there's this uh, reference to the seed of Adam and Eve who will crush the evil in the world. In the movie the passion of uh, christ actually captures this moment wonderfully now it's not in the bible but jesus there they picture him in the garden of gethsemane and he cries out to god please father if there's any other way to do this rather than going through the cross let it be so and as he's sweating blood due to the immense pain and suffering in the garden before his crucifixion jesus wrestles with the weight of the task before him and he is tempted again perhaps, to choose the easy way out. And in the film, it shows a snake, a serpent, slowly slithering towards Jesus. And it isn't in the Bible, but it's exactly the right image, where Jesus resolves, not my will, but yours be done, and he stomps over the, the head of the, of the snake. And as he goes to the cross, Jesus takes sin and death itself on. He takes sickness and pain to the cross, He takes evil to the cross and he is crucified there and the anger and wrath of God against all sin is poured out on him and obliterates, undoes and disintegrates Jesus. And ultimately, the price was fully paid. And Jesus stays there until the full task is complete and he cries out in the end, it is finished and he dies. And in that moment, The Christian is set free from sin. And in that moment, the promise for the Christian is a bright and glorious future where there is no more mourning or crying or pain. There is no sickness or death. Because of Jesus, friends, we know we have a future. We don't need to be afraid. Our future is secure the battle has been won the reason we can look to our refuge is because the work has been done jesus has crushed the head of the serpent and in doing so he crushes death disease and all the things that cause us pain in this world yes whatever may come for us in this life jesus has already crushed the serpent's head. That is the engine, the core, the power that drives our ability to trust in our refuge. We can run to him, we can trust him and we can look to him because he's already done it. Our Lord has already won the battle and as that truth takes root in our hearts, you and I will have the courage to face Whatever happens, because we know we are secure. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, reminding us again this morning of what you have done for us on the cross and how that impacts even the difficult times of our life. Lord, we pray that you will, through your Holy Spirit, Give us the great faith we need to know that whatever suffering we are going through is ultimately for our good. Even though we cannot see it now, even though we might never see it, we know that we can trust you because you have already done the work. The serpent's head has been crushed. Our sins have been paid for. Lord, thank you that we can live in that reality, under the protection of that shadow, even as our lives go through difficult times. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name.
0: Amen.